Hey, deserving listeners, I want to talk about what's happening in my country right now, and I guess more specifically in my town right now in Seattle. There's a fair amount of rioting and um, looting and protesting and unrest and news stories and fear and sadness and anger and pontificating from people like me, and so I'm going to try not to do that, but... I was thinking about of all the things that I could talk about, and there's there's a lot of things running through my head, emotions and thoughts and ranting and yammering. But I think what I could offer is the systemic perspective, which is often hard to know or may, many people don't even know about it. So I, I haven't I haven't th- I don't have any notes. So this is just off the top of my head. So I hope that this goes okay. So let's bring it to something, uh, a, a different sort of a system first, before talking about the system of my town and the system of my country and the system of the world. Let's talk about the system of a family. So in a family, we will uh, clients will come into us and they'll say, I, you know, we have a teenage boy who is um, skipping school. He is talking back to the parents. He's not doing his chores. And he's just an unpleasant person. And um, can you fix him? Well, decades ago, pioneering family therapists worked with these families, tried to help the teenager, and they might even change the teenager. And then once the teenager went back to the family, everything went back to normal. And so the family therapists, these pioneering people, they said, okay, well, we tried and succeeded in fixing the teenager, but nothing. But as soon as the teenager, teenager went back to the system and the family, everything went back to the same. Why is that? Well, then they started thinking about cybernetics and homeostasis and all these um, systemic notions from other systems, like the system of a cell, or the like, you know, a biological cell, or the system of a climate that when you look at things systemically or eco, you know, ecology. The, the example I often give, or that I think that other people give as well, is when, and this, I might have some details wrong, but just go with me on this. In Yosemite National Park in the United States, they had a quote-unquote problem with wolves. Wolves were scaring people. Maybe there was even an attack of some wolves. And so Early on in our uh, country, I don't know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they decided to kill a bunch of wolves to try to bring down the population of wolves in in the park. And because the wolves were bothering humans. So they had, you know, they had that problem. So that's akin to the problem of bringing in the teenager to the therapy and saying, fix the teenager. Well, what ended up happening, and I, again, I could have some of this wrong, but I think for the demonstration of a system, I think it, it makes a lot of sense, is, well, the wolves, there were fewer wolves in the park, which led to a, a greater uh, population of deer and other kinds of animals like that. The deer ate more of the foliage and were actually more bold to get closer to the river and would eat a lot of the foliage by the river which meant that there was less foliage, less plants with good root systems by the river, 
which led to more runoff into the river, which eroded the uh, you know the surroundings, which polluted the or changed the composition of the rivers, which killed the wildlife in the river, which led to a reduction of animals that depended on those fish life in the river, which led to greater runoff and uh, just the whole thing flew the, the system, the ecology of the park was completely thrown off when you just took out the wolves. When you think linearly and you're like, wolves are bothersome to us, get rid of the wolves, then everything gets thrown off. I think that that makes a lot of sense to people. So then we look at a system and you have a individual that is exhibiting behavior that is bothersome to other people. Well, one way of looking at it is there's something wrong with that person. Another way of looking at it is there's something wrong with the system or there's something happening in the system. So if we think about a system, so going back to Yosemite, if we think about Yosemite as a as a bunch of individual parts, like you have the wolves and you have the deer and you have the river and you have the fish, and you think about them all individually, you don't really understand those elements. You can't understand the wolves without understanding the deer, without understanding the rain, without understanding the soil, without understanding the bushes and the plants and the fish. Like the only way you can understand anything in that system is to understand the system as a whole while thinking about the individuals. So you, you, you zoom in and you zoom out. You're in this constant to understand the deer. You have to understand the wolves. You have to understand the fish to understand the teenager in this family. You have to understand the father, the mother, the siblings, the grandparents, the society, the school, the teachers, and then you understand the kid, and then you understand the dad, and then you understand the system, and you're constantly zooming in and out. That's the only way you can understand. And this is a very difficult way to think. It's so much easier just to blame the wolves. It's so much easier just to blame the teenager than to have to consider hundreds, if not thousands, of elements that contribute to the way a system operates. Okay, So that's systems theory, and that's what family therapy is and couples therapy is based on all marriage and family therapists are trained in, in systems theory but it's very difficult to understand and I'll tell you just as a side note I was trained in systems theory and didn't really get it until 15 years after I graduated and I'd been teaching classes based on systems theory I literally taught a class called systems perspectives and family therapy for many years before I really got systems theory <laughs> so it's hard you know it's it's a hard way to think it's a hard way to um, hold on to. It's a hard paradigm to hold on to, but practice makes perfect. And, and I've practiced a lot. So to understand a family system, uh, you have to understand the way the system operates as a unit. The element, the, the parents, the children are all one unit. So one way to think about it is that the unit has needs and the individuals have needs. So the teenager has needs and the mom has needs and the dad has needs, but also the family has needs. So if we just collectively think about it as one organism, in the same way that human beings are made up of a bunch of individual cells, right? You could look at a cell as a system, but you can't understand the cell without understanding the full organism, which is a human being. And you can't understand the full human being without understanding the system that it operates within, the, the, the social system, and then the cultural system, the political system. 
And so to understand the family, sometimes what we would find is that what's happening in the family is that there is perhaps just general... So backing up, the, f- the family system has a need for closeness and has a need for uh, not a lot of anxiety. You know, the family system strives to have as, as little anxiety and pain as possible. And the family system strives to have the most joy and connection and warmth and freedom and competence, all the things that individuals want, a family system wants as well. And the because we're connected, we're not individuals. And so, for example, when your older brother graduates from uh, college, the family system is proud. The family, the kid is proud, the person who graduated from college is proud, but also the family system is proud. And I, I think most people don't understand that. So just because one person does something doesn't mean that it isn't a part of the whole system, doesn't reflect on the whole system. And sometimes it can even get to the point where a family system will say, well, we can't afford to send everyone to college, so we're going to send Jennifer to college, and that will make all of us happy, even though Jennifer is the only one that's individually benefiting from the degree. So when we would treat families with a teenager that was acting out, we would often find that the family in general was sad and hurt about a lot of things and that what was happening was the teenager was expressing the anger and discontent for everyone else. Everyone in the family had a unexpressed discontent, an unexpressed anger, an unexpressed desire to want to change things. And so the teenager would be elected by the system subconsciously, and the teenager would volunteer subconsciously to play that role for the family. Because if it wasn't him, it had to be someone else. And if it wasn't someone else, then everyone would kind of have to face the fear and the uncertainty of expressing their anger at the risk of maybe flying apart. And of course, a teenage boy is expected to be rebellious. And so he is the logical choice to play that role. And again, most of this is subconscious. So the teenage boy expresses the mother's anger, the father's anger, the sister's anger. And although consciously everyone is upset at the teenager for doing this, subconsciously everyone is happy that at least someone is talking back to the parents. At least someone is saying things should be different. And so family systems therapists recognize that and they would say, okay, we have an anger, we have an anger teenager. What is the anger of this family that is not being expressed functionally. Let's get in touch with that. Mother, what is your son expressing for you? Father, what is your son expressing for you? What anger are you feeling? And what we would find is that as people, this is just a, a one potential example of this. There's many different directions to go, and you know that would be helpful with an angry teenager in a family system, but one that I've seen a lot is, is, you know, I asked the father in front of the boy, what are you angry about that is not being expressed? And man, you would be surprised how much anger is not being expressed in a family. <laughs> or maybe you wouldn't be surprised. So everyone starts expressing their anger. And lo and behold, the teenage boy expresses less anger because he doesn't need to express all the family's anger. So 
I hope this makes a lot, I hope this makes sense that the family system is a whole. It is one organism. It is one unit. It is not a set of individuals. They are a set of individuals, but the the sum is greater than the sum of its parts, right? What did I say? <laughs> the collective is anyway. Um, I, I'm terrible with idioms. <laughs> I blame my wonderful parents for not being good with idioms as well, but hope you get my meaning. So when we look at society, when we look at my town right now, it's tempting to look at it as a set of individuals. You have people burning police cars downtown right now. We have people who are uh, spraying mace or pepper spray in, in people's faces that don't deserve it. We have police officers shooting rubber bullets at people and, and really hurting them. We have people, once again, putting their knees on people's necks. We have people throwing bricks through businesses. We have businesses who are innocent here. The Some of those businesses downtown Seattle, if not all of them, are probably fully on board with the protests. We have, we have peaceful protesters. We have African-Americans. We have white people. We have Asians. We have... We have all the different groups of people in our town. We have politicians and news reporters and people on Twitter. So it's tempting to look at individually, depending on where you're at, to look at a police officer who put a put their knee on someone's neck and uh, killed them, either accidentally or on purpose. You have other police officers who would never do that. You have other police officers who would do that. You have citizens who support the police. You have citizens who support the police but don't support this action. You have other people who hate the police in general, regardless of who you are. So you have all these different individuals, and it's tempting to to focus on that. And as linear thinkers, as humans, we tend to do that. Or depending on the culture you live in, honestly, some cultures tend to think more linearly than others. But point is, is that it's easier to do that. And when we have news reports that really focus on these individual events, it's sometimes misleading to the overall thing. For example, downtown Seattle right now, there are thousands of protesters and only very few individuals who are uh, breaking any kind of law like vandalism or graffiti or uh, violence. And you would never know that from the news coverage. You would, uh, I've had people emailing me asking if I'm okay. You know, they're like, oh, I'm seeing the news reports. Are you okay? As if the entire city of Seattle is burning to the ground. We're talking about a very small geographic uh, region, which is downtown and a small part of downtown. So now those things are happening and it's not insignificant. It, it's, it's important and we should report on those stories. But my point is, is that let's think about it systemically. Okay, so let's zoom out. We have a society that has a history of racism, and it is empirically uh, found to be true. In fact, there's a really famous large-scale study on the Seattle Police Department. Now, I will say, as a caveat, I have very close friends on the Seattle Police Department, (laughs) who work and have been working there for decades and other police departments around Seattle. Um, 
I know I've grown, I've, I've, I'm born and raised in the Seattle area. And so I know a lot of people and some of those people happen to be police officers, close friends of mine. And I've, I've even had some of them on the podcast in the past. And so I just want to say that, that police officers, the police officers that I know are good people. They care. And, you know, there's a culture in the police department that can create certain attitudes that are apparent in my close friends. Anyway, so let's look at the system. So we have we have racism in our society, and there's there was a large-scale study in Seattle that actually measured whether or not African Americans were being treated unfairly, and they were. And it wasn't just by white police officers; it was by all police officers. I can't remember the whole, the whole all the stats, but the point is, is that we have a problem in our society where African Americans are being treated differently, in general, on average, by the police. So we're, we're remember we're looking at the police as a unit. We're looking at African American citizens as a unit, and we can't do that obviously all the time. Then we zoom in. And we see one African-American being murdered by a police officer in Minnesota. And then we zoom out and we see that um, a lot of police officers aren't doing that sort of thing. And then we zoom in and we see another police officer who is uh, joining in on the protest. And then we zoom out and we see that on average police uh, systems are exhibiting racist attitudes on average. So what does that say? Well, it says that uh, many police officers are not exhibiting alarming racist behaviors, but many are, but on average, that's what's happening. And so then you have African-Americans who have been noticing this for decades and have been periodically uh, showing their discontent Black Lives Matter, Watts riots, O.J. Simpson riots, um, the uh, you know the Rodney King uh, riots, and then you have other elements of the system. Let's call it suburban mainstream America, where they watch the news reports, and of course the news reports are pointing at at a particular element of this, the most sensational elements, the burning cop cars, the the violence, the um, you know, the unrest. And then you have how they feel about things. They want security. They don't want the mobs coming and destroying their businesses or their homes. They want police officers to feel emboldened to fight criminals. And I'm guessing mainstream America on average also doesn't want police to go beyond a certain um, boundary when it comes to enforcing the law. So, like I said in the beginning of this, I hadn't, I didn't take any notes, so I'm, I'm walking myself through this as, as I'm, as I'm talking about it. <laughs> and, and as you can say, I, I'm, I'm in my own brain, I'm starting to lose focus because to think about all the different elements, it's so hard. Okay, so if you are one of those people who is looking at the news and seeing all the rioting and the bricks through a coffee shop or a target and looting. It's tempting to look at that and say, what's wrong with those people? How does this 
how does this help anything? What, how is looting a target going to elevate African-Americans? How is it going to send a message to police that they need to stop being so brutal? If anything, it's just going to make it worse, right? Well, one way to think about it is it's that angry teenager who is smoking pot and getting Fs in classes and skipping school and talking back to the parents and being mean and just being a bad person. But when we actually looked at the situation, we found that 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 teenage boy was actually doing, was sacrificing himself for the greater good of the family. He was trying to alert the family that something was rotten in Denmark, that something was wrong. And when the family paid attention to it enough and went to family therapy, then we can actually, we're given a chance because of the teenager to actually elevate the whole system. So when I see people doing what I deemed, if we just look individually, remember, if we think linearly and not systemically, and we just look at the that, that person throwing that brick through that window, that that is a crime. That's wrong. And that's unfair. And the people who have to clean that up and the people who have to pay for that, that's, that's just wrong. That how can that be right? Well, let's zoom out. What that person is doing is they've been elected by our society and they volunteered to express an anger that all of us feel. All of us should be angry that there are police officers who literally get away with murder. And we have a system that in traditionally, I will say, because in this instance, it, it looks like they are charging him and it looks like he might actually go to prison. But, but it's not just, you know, the legal consequences of a police officer murdering an African-American. It's the culture in police groups that promotes these ideas. And, and the reprisals that, that African-American people as a group will often feel like, like if you, if you're, if you're not African-American or you're not a person of color and you watch an arrest and you think, why don't, why doesn't an African-American man just, just comply? Why don't they just comply? If they just complied with the police officer, everything would be fine. And there's actually some wisdom to that. But the, the larger thing here is when you are humiliated and mistreated and um, profiled and pulled over just because you're black, you're not going to be in the best of moods. <laughs> it's just not humanly possible for, for people who look at that and they, they, again, they just look at the individual. Why isn't that black man just complying? That's what I would do if I was being told to get on the ground and put my hands behind my back, that I would do that. Even if I thought that it was unfair to do that to me, I would just do that because I would want to be safe. And I want to be clear, many African-American people do that, by the way. Probably most just say, okay, fine. Uh, but we hear about the, you know, the extreme examples. 
But when you're treated so badly for so for so long, not only as a group, you know, you hear about your aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers, sisters, your parents, but yourself, you you just don't have the best attitude when 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 push comes to shove. You're just like, oh, really, for for this, I'm getting this amount of this amount of anger and this amount of um, aggression. Could couldn't you just be nice? Um, so, so there's that. So again, when we see that protester who is even, I'm guessing some of you are even thinking like, well, why are, why are they even going down there? There's a curfew or why would, why would you put yourself in danger at the protest when all these horrible things are happening? Because the system needs it. The system recognizes a problem as a system, as a town, Seattle and King County. We have a a bunch of needs as a collective. We have a need for security. We have a need for for justice. We have a need for people to be heard. We have a need for equality. We all have that need, regardless of political leanings. Everyone agrees that people shouldn't be treated unfairly. Now, if you're in an echo chamber, you have a perhaps skewed idea of what fairness is because the data that has been given to you is is wrong. But as a collective, we agree that equality is good, that um, security is good, that you know to, your business shouldn't have a brick thrown through the window, that um, political change is important, and that rules are important. The rule of law is important, meaning that citizens and police shouldn't be able to do certain things. And what is happening right now is we have a culture either in the police departments or in our society that isn't changing fast enough for whatever reason we could speculate, but it's not changing fast enough. So the teenager in us has been elected and they volunteered to stand up and express our anger. And that's alerting us. It doesn't mean that smoking pot and getting Fs and skipping school and running away from home and yelling at your parents and calling them names. It doesn't mean that that behavior is okay. But when we look closely at it, it does mean that it alerts us to something. It's telling us something about what the system needs, what we all need collectively. And I hope that this makes sense to people. And I hope that if you don't know me very well, that you understand that for years now, and I feel funny that I have to say this, for years now I have been advocating for a change in police culture and police practices. I support the police 100%. Like I said, I have friends who are police officers. They're good people. I hear their stories, um, you know, ground level in terms of the things that they have to deal with every day. Police officers have to deal with a lot of really, really terrible behavior from people. And for the most part, police officers are pretty professional. And I can't tell you enough how happy I am that I have friends who are, and people like them, who respond when I call 911. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, there was this really um, 
kind of crazy situation happening on my street in the middle of the night. And I called the police and they came and they, they fixed it. <laughs> I hope people understand that I'm pro-police, but I'm also 100% aware of the empirical evidence that police on average treat people of color worse, treat people of certain classes worse. So it's not just, it's not just African-Americans and it's not just people of color. It's people who exhibit what would be called low class or working class as well, which includes white people, by the way. So there's a lot of different um, oppressions and prejudices that are exhibited in society that, of course, would be exhibited in, in the police force because police exist within the system of the larger society. In the same way that therapists, my field, we have found that there's racism on average among therapists. So it's not just police officers. It's any system, any system that exists within a racist society is going to exhibit racism. It's just a matter of fact. But what do we do about it? Do we recognize it and admit it and, and try to change it? Or do we ignore it? And when you ignore it, then this is what happens. So if, if police departments had done enough, and I know a lot of police departments are doing things to combat this, a lot of, the police, depart a lot of police departments are aware of uh, implicit bias and just flat-out racism, and they're doing things about it. But on average, the police forces in the United States are not doing enough, and it's noticeable. And so when an, when an event like this happens, it flares that anger because we all have a need. This, this, is the, it's, this anger, this violence is expressing a need for all of us that we want good police and we want there to be change. We don't want them to throw away everything. We want the police to recognize that implicit bias is scientifically a fact and that uh, when we study police departments in the collective, we see racist practices. For example, in the study in Seattle, they looked at, okay, if you pulled over someone who had marijuana smell in the car, how many of those people were arrested and this sort of thing? Well, what they found was that if the person was black, so they the same exact circumstance, pulled over for speeding, smell pot inside the car. How many, uh, you know, is, it, is police response different given the race of the person driving the car? And the answer is yes, on average. If the person's black, then they're much more likely to be charged. If the person's white, they're less likely to be charged. Do white people get charged in those situations? Yeah. Are there some black people that get off scot-free because the police officer just decided not to do anything? Yeah. But on average, we find that there is a, a signal there, which of course makes sense because since the day we're born, whether you're a police officer or not, you have all these racist notions that are pumped into your head that black people are criminals and stupid and... I don't know, some other kind of human and 
or the or they're just foreign and other or exotic or something you know there there's just all these messages and so and there's messages given in all sorts of groups um african americans are uh, sometimes fed messages about what white people are that might not be fair but the point is is that we have a uh that that what i'm the point i'm trying to make <laughs> is that if you're new to the podcast uh, I've been advocating for this sort of thing for a long time. I did whole episodes on Philando Castile, um, whole episodes on various different incidents over the years. And generally speaking, I try to avoid this sort of thing because this podcast, I will often record episodes sometimes months in advance. And so I try to keep it evergreen and not topical. So um, just by convenience about my life. Cause you know, I'm, I'm a professor and a therapist and a supervisor. And so I try to sneak in a recording here and there, and it's not really possible usually for me to like what I'm doing today, which is to record an episode on the day that it comes out. So anyway, um, so I hope you get the idea that there's a lot of ways to look at this and we have a lot of talking to do. And we have a lot of exploring to do. And we have a lot of listening to do. A lot of listening to do. That we have a system where there are people expressing the anger for all of us. And it doesn't mean that those behaviors individually are right. But it probably means that we all have anger. And we all need to do something about this. We all need to look at what's happening. Dad is angry that he has to work all the time. Mom is angry that she is being disrespected by everyone in the family. And she's the made out to be the stupid one. Younger sister is angry because she's ignored. Uh, teenage boy is angry because he isn't given freedoms. Dad is angry because he feels alone and sad and ignored about who he really is. Mom is angry because she also is alone and scared and rejected. And the teenage boy has been elected by the system to say, no, something must change here. But he doesn't know that is his subconscious to him. He, he doesn't like his family. It doesn't feel good to him but he doesn't know exactly why that's happening. He doesn't really uh, intuit or hasn't been told to him that his parents are angry too. And they're very sad too. And so when you come to therapy and a systems therapist looks at this, then we have an opportunity to actually investigate that and start to address, start to address the core issues as to why the teenager is doing this behavior, what's happening underneath it all. So let's look at our society. What is happening underneath it all? Well, it's pretty obvious uh, to me. And the solution is, the solution has been proposed by experts for decades. I have a friend who actually was a police officer and now he's a psychologist and he does this kind of work where he goes into police departments and trains them on essentially how to be less racist and it it sounds like you know pc stuff like political correctness to some but it's not let me give you an example so 
as therapists, it's customary for uh, training programs to involve a fair amount of sensitivity training, if you will, or oppression awareness. Most therapists are white women and thus have some awareness of sexism and so have maybe they benefit on some level from, well, I'm not going to just paint it's all white women. It, it's obviously not all white women, <laughs> but it is, it is dominantly white and dominantly women. And uh, so, but let's just stick with white people. So I'm half white. And I definitely have white privilege and understand it well. So I just want to be clear about that. But anyway, um, so as therapists, a big part of our training usually, and especially at Antioch where I teach, a big part of our training involves exploring your biases and your thoughts and the propaganda that you've internalized about race, about gender, about sexual identity, about accent, about nationality, about disability, about all the different uh, identity groups that are oppressed, about political leanings. And because as therapists, we, we have to treat everyone. And so we can't just treat the people in our pocket. So, which is often the fantasy of the therapist trainee. I, I often will have to break the news to them that half of your clients are going to be Republican because most of the students at Antioch are Democrat, liberal. And so I'll say, by the way, half of your clients are going to be Republican, are going to be Trump supporters, are going to be uh, make America great again people. And the looks on their faces are like, what? I'm going to have to have compassion. I'm going to have to listen. I'm going to have to help MAGA people? And I'm like, yeah. And I'll say, <laughs> there, and I, I say this phrase, like, there was you before you became a therapist, which you're free to have your own leanings politically or biases or whatever. And then there's you now, which has to change. You, have, you, you can still have your political views. You can still vote in certain ways, but you can no longer be one of those just unhinged Americans who just has this notion about the other side of the aisle that is uh, negative because you have to have true positive regard, true compassion for all of your clients, regardless of what type of group they come from. And that's, you know, that's a hard pill to swallow, but we work on it, man. Like it is, you know, months and months and months of exploring and pounding into their heads <laughs> and self-disclosures by professors and very, humanistic discussions and very self-awareness related discussions and people are rewarded for going down that road and they are not rewarded for not going that down that road we we have students who don't go down that road and we kick them out of the program if you can't exhibit the ability to do that then you are um, someone who should never treat someone because to be a good therapist, you have to be humble about your point of view. You have to be aware of your point of view. You have to be aware of your politics. You have to be aware of how your uh, propaganda, the propaganda that's been pumped into your head has influenced you. Now, 
it's hard to know how well as a university we're doing with that, but we're giving it our best shot, I think. I think we probably could do a little better, but but we're doing pretty well, I think, compared to the landscape. <laughs> um, you know, I've been at Antioch for 25 years or so, and uh, I've seen a lot of different things happen. Anyway, my point is, is that as therapists, we're trained to do that, and it's hard work. And so you have a bunch of therapists who actually, as as students, they often really crave that. A lot of people come to Antioch just for that. They're just like, I want social justice as a major um, component of my training. And so even though you have students who are total pro-social justice going to a total pro-social justice university – and it's therapy, which is very warm and compassionate. You still see racism. You still see privilege. You still see colonialism. You still see um, sexism and ableism and ageism. Uh, you still see all of it. But we're trained to catch it and to try to work on it. Police force is a – the police are a very similar kind of thing. You know, they interface with human beings. How – and they have tremendous power, way more power than a therapist does. And how much training do they go through? You know, my point here is that therapists go through so much training and they still fail all the time. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I, I teach social justice and have been for 25 years. It's a component of every class that I teach. And yet I have regular transgressions of racism and sexism and privilege. And I probably only catch like a, a small percentage of them. So I can't imagine being a police force who has a hundred times more power than a therapist does that the little bit of training that they go through would be sufficient. They would have to... To be, they need more training than we do in a lot of ways. They need, police force needs more training than therapists do regarding social justice than we do because the damage that they can do with their power is literally murdering people. You know, what therapists can do is just be a bad therapist, which is a bad thing, believe me. I lose sleep at night about what's happening sometimes in my profession, but... But that's, you know, I would say a far cry from murder. And we're not in a situation like that right now. Police departments aren't doing that, that level of training. So that's the solution. Because until we don't live in a racist society, these sorts of institutions, the therapy institution, the policing institution the medical institution until we don't live in a racist society and a sexist society and an ableist society and an ageist society until we don't believe until we don't live in those in, in that sort of society anymore. These institutions have to be extremely well-trained, extremely well-trained. And I know that a lot of police departments, this is anecdotally react to these kinds of trainings as if it's this bother. And part of it could be because the trainings are terrible. I don't know, but it that's what we're looking at. And the lack of that, or at least 
what seems to be the lack of that is what is highly visible to the population and results in obvious, on average, problems. Are there black people who are treated humanely by police officers? Yes. But it's, on average, it's noticeable to people, particularly people who are being mistreated, African Americans. And the only way out of this, in my estimation, is that sort of training. And in order, but in order to have that kind of training, which would be extensive, and I'm not talking just like one day a year, I'm talking like half of the training in police training should be on it. I mean, it's an important part of uh, wielding your power. And, but it should be like ongoing. And in order to have that, you have to change the culture. So let me talk about my profession in this way as well. So 50 years ago, therapists were not socially just, were on average, for the most part, completely unaware of how racism affects therapy, how sexism affects therapy, how privilege affects therapy. Why? Because we lived in a society that didn't really recognize it. And so as we started to move forward, and since we are, we sort of lean that way anyway as a profession, and since we're science-based and we do a lot of research as a group, therapists and psychologists, we started seeing these results like, oh my God, we have, we have a racism element in our society and we have a racism element in our profession. We got to change that. Well, what are we going to do? Well, we got to start training people. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, we got to start raising awareness. We got to start speaking up. We got to start maybe yelling at people. We got to start making people feel uncomfortable. And slowly but surely, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s to the present, there's been a shift in culture to the point now where, on average, most people in my profession, psychology and psychotherapy, are 100% on board with social justice ideas. But we didn't get here just, we didn't emerge from the womb like this. We got here because of anger, awareness, training, people speaking out, uh, putting people in their place when they are speaking out of turn. It was, it was tough. It has not been easy. It has been a process, and it's ongoing, and we still have a long way to go. Well, that's what has to happen in the police department. There has to be a shift in culture, a shift in ideals, a shift in values, and then the training will come from that and the receptiveness to the training and the quality of the training. I've been to a lot of bad cultural trainings in psychotherapy, but that didn't ruin my dedication to the, to the cause because the culture is different in psychotherapy as I was coming up in the 90s uh, in, in the profession. As I had bad trainings, I was like, well, you know, you, you get some good culture trainings, and social justice trainings, and you get some bad ones. But I, I have a suspicion that a lot of police departments, they get a couple bad trainings and they're like, this is stupid, let's just move on. And it doesn't really get the, the momentum that it needs to get. Now, I will say that 
policing in the United States, if you're aware of this, is very local. That local police departments tend to have their own structure and their own power structure. They're they're kind of free to do what they want to do in some ways. And so there are police departments around the United States who are actually hitting this pretty hard. I would be suspicious and I would suspect that they still have a cultural problem. But I'm not going to say, I'm not going to paint all police departments in one light. In fact, I know a lot of people in the Seattle Police Department that are doing wonderful work. But I don't, in my anecdotal experience, I still don't see a cultural shift. You would, for example, if you just asked a psychotherapist, uh, you know, what, what do you think about social justice training? Or what do you, what do you think about uh, the idea that you need to recognize your own implicit bias? You'd be hard-pressed to find a therapist that would say, ah, I don't know, it's all a bunch of malarkey vast, vast majority of therapists would say, oh, yeah, it's a very important thing that we all work on. Now, does that, and then how many police officers, if you just pulled them aside and, you know, just sampled them, I don't know the stats, but I'm guessing it would be a lower percentage of police officers that would say, oh, yeah, absolutely, social justice, bias, Um, I have internalized racism myself, I need to be constantly vigilant, otherwise I'm going to I'm going to be unfair to some groups of people based on the racism and sexism and ableism and all the isms that I've internalized from society. How many police officers would say that? Some would, but not enough in my estimation. You just have two groups of people, but what's the difference? The difference is culture. The difference is training. The difference is ideals and values within that culture. And so we have to change the culture of our society as a whole and as a police force. And the, these riots and the bricks through windows are alerting us to all of our need for that to happen. We have subconsciously elected those people to make noise because we all know that something needs to change. And so so let me speak to you that part, because some of you might be thinking, well, I don't know. I mean, there's some people on the right who are like, they don't recognize this at all. Well, I bet you anything, if I asked them, what, what do you want to change? They would say, well, we have a problem with people being too mean to police officers that, you know, they would say, we have a problem in America where people on the left feel like they can just yell at police officers and, and throw things at police officers. And I would say, yes, that is a problem. But let's zoom out a little bit. Where does that come from? So regardless of what side of the aisle you are on politically, everyone agrees, for the most part, I would imagine that something's got to change here. There's something wrong here. And what is at its core is obvious, which is our historical racism that we have inherited from our past. We didn't invent racism (laughs) against black people. People invented it centuries ago to uphold slavery. It's just that simple. It was economics and also classism and all sorts of, and colonialism. There's a lot of things that play into it, but a big part of it in the United States was economics. 
in order for a group of people to make money, they had to believe that black people were lesser. And they had to believe that black people could be, um, in, their rights could be infringed upon. And that upheld economy, that it, that upheld the ability to pay one's bills and to put clothes on your back and, you know, sustenance for a, for a lot of people that they depended on that. And so you, you go into denial of certain things and you've confirmation bias and, and you rinse and repeat that for centuries and you have a, a, a cultural idea that black people are criminals and lesser and deserve to be punished and are threats and don't really matter and that those attitudes just get passed down and here we are and that's that's what we all just want to change that's the problem and that those ideas naturally get infused in all institutions psychotherapy police everywhere and so those bricks through windows and those burning cop cars are our system's way of alerting ourselves to the problem. Now, I will say that I pray to God that no one gets hurt seriously. People already are dying and being seriously hurt. I, I don't, on that level, I do think individually. And I, I, I wish that all of us can get through this Unscathed, You know, there's a big difference between windows and humans. A brick through a window, that can be repaired. There's probably insurance that pays for it. I'm not saying it's justified, but I'm, I'm saying that when I see that, I think, well, you know, Cheesecake Factory, you know, they probably have insurance for that. But when people are dying, when people are being seriously harmed, then I'm like, oh boy, uh, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about that one. Anyway. I mean, I do know how I feel about it. It terrifies me and makes me sad for everyone. So, wow, I've been talking for a long time. I thought I was only going to talk for a little bit of time about this. <laughs> I literally thought I was going to talk for like five minutes, and it's almost an hour now. Um, I hope that you understand what I'm saying, and I hope that for you new people, I hope you give me the benefit of the doubt because I feel like sometimes when – I talk about sensitive issues. People think people don't have the benefit of having been listening to this podcast for 12 years and don't have the full scope of my entire point of view on this. But I don't know if I can't fit it in in an hour, then what's wrong with me, right? So what can we do about it? What can we do? Well, we can continue to put pressure on police, on politicians, on society, to know that racism is a thing. To know that science has demonstrated that racism is a thing. And that police, the racism within police is a thing. And that we're only going to change this if we are aware of it first and admit it first. You have to admit the problem first before you can change the problem. I don't know what that means in terms of continuing to put pressure. Is that tweeting? Maybe. Is it talking to your neighbors? Maybe. What is it? Is it doing research? Probably. Is it supporting people who do want to speak out? Is it having a podcast where you talk about it? Maybe. I don't know. But we need to continue to put that pressure that we don't just use this as a flash in the pan where 
we had riots for a week and then we just forgot about it. We need to continue the pressure and we need to propose uh, solutions to this. We need to have politicians. We need to vote politicians in who are thinking rationally about this, that they are thinking, yes, there's a problem. Let's sit down with some experts and figure out what to do. So that's what I want to see. I want to see politicians, leaders, police leaders saying, we have a problem. I recognize it. And I recognize that I'm just a politician or I'm just a police precinct captain. I don't know the answers. Let's get some sociologists. Let's get some therapists or some psychology researchers. Let's get some African-American leaders. Let's get some advocates in here and let's have a Let's get some police advocates. Let's get some Republicans in here. Let's, let's talk about this as a collective. What does the data show? Let's look at the facts. Let's not look at quote unquote fake news and let's rationally as a leadership community, make a decision for the future, dedicate ourselves, create a manifesto, not just tweet, not just try to get reelected. Let's actually sit down and try to fix this problem. But we're not going to do this individually. We have to do this as a collective. People have to um, work together and listen to each other and not uh, ridicule the other. That's not gonna, a family that comes into my office and they're all suffering from something. Say it's loneliness and distance and sadness ridiculing each other. You work all the time. You're a workaholic. What's wrong with you? Well, you're such a cold B word that, but you know, that doesn't help (laughs) when a family comes into my office and they're doing that. It it makes sense to me. They're, they're angry and their primary emotion is sadness and, and fear. It makes sense why they're, why they're being that way, why they're, why they have contempt. They've had a lot of resentment over the years. makes sense, but it's not going to effing help. (laughs) And, I have to uh, stop that. I have to say, no, stop. That's, that's not going to help. Let's, what's going on with you right now? Why, why are you expressing that? What, what emotions are underneath that anger and that contemptuous statement? What's going on? And then once they calm down, then we can actually start to heal some of those wounds. Well, that's what we have to do on a societal level too. We can't just yell at the other side of the aisle. Republicans are just a bunch of, you know, control freaks who just want to kill African Americans. Democrats are just a bunch of liberal idiots who don't understand that the rule of law is important. I mean, I'm probably being nice. The sort of words that people say are much worse than that, right? Get your guns or whatever people say. That's not going to help. That is not going to help. I get it, but it's not going to help. So, We have to be a collective. We are part of a collective. We can't get out of our collective. We have to solve this collectively. The Republicans can't fix this problem on their own. The Democrats can't fix this problem on their own. Everyone has to look at this. And we all want the same thing. We all want safety for ourselves and our families. We all want fairness. We all want that. And we can... We can rely on that similarity for human beings 
and move forward on that and not ridicule the other and make them dig their heels in. But I don't know, man. I I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm 49. I've been through this process a lot. I've been through these sorts of riots a lot in my life. And it's hard not to get jaded and cynical about it. It's hard not to look at it and say like, this is just a repeat of what happened last time. And there was all the talk and all the, and I would do podcasts about it. And, and have we changed? Maybe a little, clearly not fast enough. Are we going to see another one of these incidents in three years? Probably. I hope not. I mean, not three years in terms of the next death that's unfair, but in terms of the big one that gets noticed and riots happen. These sorts of things happen every day. The kind of mistreatment of certain groups of people by police on average. So, I mean, now I'm just getting real with, with y'all. I, I, I do get um, pessimistic. At the same time, if you again look at the if you zoom out and look at the the arch the arc what did Martin Luther King say again I'm terrible with idioms and quotes of of history bends towards justice right we we do see general justice happening you know we see justice generally happening as we move forward but man is it slow <laughs> is it just so slow and I, it, it just is so illogical. A hundred years from now, people are going to look back at us and say, what was wrong with you? Why weren't those people in 2020, why didn't they pull their heads out of their butts? How hard is it just to say, hey, you know what? Science has demonstrated we got a problem. Let's fix it. What, do we, what should we do? Well, let's dedicate some money and some time to uh, helping police officers understand and to, and to get trained. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, in order to do that, we got we to gotta have some really good trainers. We got to have pl- actual police officers who the other police officers can, can trust. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, it's going to cost money. You got you to gotta get people who are good and you got to get a lot of them. And you got to create a YouTube channel. You got to create a a web page that is dedicated to, you know, U.S. Police Social Justice Forum or something. You know, it's a movement, man. It's a thing, and it's got to have all sorts of elements. And and frankly, it costs money because a lot of people they don't have free time to do this sort of thing. You gotta you gotta have people. This is their full time job. There has to be like a, a thousands of people in the United States who are police officers or former police officers who. This is all that they do, and it is paid for by tax dollars. Uh, you know, 100 years from now, they probably will have such things, and they'll look back at us, and they'll just be like, why didn't they just do that? In the same way that we look back 100 years ago, and we say, you know, Jim Crow, Jim Crow, segregation laws, uh, n- suppression of the vote for African Americans in the South. Like, what, what's wrong with you people? Why are you doing that? Well, we're living in a time when we're going to get ridiculed by people in the future. And I just wish that we could just just 
get it over with. Let's just move forward, people. Let's look at this logically. There's a there's a logical way of looking at this. Um, so, but God knows if I'm right. I mean, who knows? I'm just one person. I'm not an expert on this. This is this is just me yammering about what's in my head. And frankly, it's not everything that's in my head. So I should probably end it there. <laughs> All right, people. Um, let me know what you think. I hope you're doing well. Hope you're safe. Okay, people, I'm yammering, and I want you all to take care of yourself, and please, for the love of God, take care of other people, because we all deserve it. We really, really do.